Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team and KIT. Hello and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce for Tomorrow, sponsored by Ericsson. Today, I have one of my core team, and it's his first podcast. Hello, Neil Syme. Hello, Jason. How are you? What a great pleasure it is to be here today and improve on what is already a fantastic podcast. Do you mean improve on, meaning that you could be the next Scottish? But hold on. I did agree with Jerry and Brian. There should only be, and even David Reed at the NOV, there should only be one Scotsman at a time on the show, but we're kind of breaking that this time, aren't we? Well, a little bit, but you know what? There is always room for improvement. And I think (laughs) let's have a see, see if that works out. You know what I mean? I've got hair. I've got slightly, you know, sexier voice. I think all that's going to come out throughout this podcast. So it's, you know what? I've already got this podcast getting deleted now, Neil. Thank you for the feedback. (laughs) I'll take that one. So Neil, just can you give an intro of who you are and why it's important on Energy Workforce of Tomorrow, please? Sure. So Neil Syme, I'm a partner at IBM focusing on the Shell account. My background is spending 15 plus years in the oil and gas industry, not only with IBM, but with other companies like Century, YPWC. But where I've been focusing in the oil and gas industry is primarily in places like Shell and done that for about half of my career, but also BP, Saudi Aramco, Gazprom. There was even some of the smaller, smaller companies. So I had been in around a bit, but based my time primarily in London, and then moved over here at the States about three and a half years ago. So it's all good. Finding the new experience, fantastic. So we're now going to confuse everyone with two Scottish voices. Can we just sit in with each other and just sort of do calls, et cetera, that we can just step in? Totally. People were like uh, voice twins. Is that what you're saying? Voice twins. (laughs) Voice twins. I like that one. Digital twin voice twins. (laughs) So Neil, what's your view on energy workforce for tomorrow? Why is it important, do you think? I mean... It's so important. I was speaking to one of the chief petroleum engineers of one of the super majors yesterday, and we even had a chat about this. And it is so important in trying to get some of the new generation into some of the work that we're doing at the moment while still pulling on some of the old. And it's one of the greatest challenges we're all having because of the fact that new analytics, new AI, machine learning is building upon some of the new industry standards such as OSDU. All of that stuff needs to be embedded within the new talent structure. And I don't think this is a kind of revolution that's not happened for 40, 50 years. So that's why I think it's so important we address this topic right now to really understand where can we go next, as well as reflect on what worked in the past to then learn the lessons to bring that forward. So, yeah, super excited to get on this topic. Perfect. Well, welcome again. And um, by the way, I have chosen a very special guest, a crazy one, but one that you will enjoy. So I would like to introduce you, Neil. And here he is, Fred DeGator Miles from Ingenics. Hello, Fred. How are you? From Turkey. Hey, how tonight. y'all doing? You know, I just want to point out, it looks like the Europe and America traded uh, a Cajun for two Scotsmen. I guess that's about right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Who dat? I'm a Cajun and I follow the saints, but since I'm over in Turkey now in Europe and Russia, 
and y'all are in Houston, it looks like it's almost a fair trade. There you go. Two for one. If you're following them, Fred, I'm just, but if you're not getting a chance to follow them, take my word for it. They're doing great right now. Don't look at the news. Don't believe anybody else. They're doing great. Who's that? The Saints? <laughs> the Saints. No, they ain't, man. No, they, they, unfortunately. we're going to put the bags back on our heads from 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So, Fred, someone who's really done, visited more upstream sort of operations and business units that you can shake a stick at. I'm joking apart. You're probably the one that's visited so many. Give us an intro, Fred, of who you are and, you know, from how many days were you before you actually went on the oil field? And just give us a bit of an intro, a Fred Miles intro. Yeah, you can go back and actually look up in history somewhere in oil and gas, you'll see my dad's name, Fred Miles. But I was actually a week old when I was on a drilling rig for the first time. And from there, it never really slowed down. I tried to. When I was became a college student, I was never going to be an oil and gas guy and travel. And that's exactly what I've done for 40 years. <laughs> so, you know, it, life's funny that way. I did a count roughly. I've, on business, I've been to 60 countries and I've actually lived in 16 all over the world. And almost all of it has been chasing oil and gas. And it's either I've been involved in production and drilling. Then for a number of years, I've been involved in SAP and transformation. It's been quite a ride. I mean, Jason and I came together from PwC way back in the day. You know, then it became IBM. And then we've all kind of stuck together and hung together. But I'm in Turkey now. I spent a number of years in Russia. So I've got background there. I've been in UAE, Qatar. Mexico. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's hectic. It drives my wife crazy, but it's a lot of fun. Fred, what's it been like just for the audience as well? This is a global podcast, but what's your view of life during COVID and post-COVID now in the last year or so being outside the US from your perspective? What's your feelings in terms of oil and gas perspective? The biggest thing for me was not being able to travel. It was the first time, you know, there was a few months during September you know, 2001, where uh, we couldn't travel, but not being able to travel for a year and a half is hugely impactful. I mean, mentally for me, because I'm used to traveling all the time. But it's the same thing for all of the oil and gas guys. We couldn't go out to the field. We couldn't do anything. Everything had to be learned again from online. And it's kind of worked, but still there's parts that are missing when you can't get to the field and see everyday life. And now it's kind of even different again because we've had the conflict going on in the Ukraine, you know, with Russia and everybody else, Belarusia and Europe and everybody else. And again, it's made travel hard and it's made it difficult internationally for people to move around. And you've managed to stay married as well during this time. Even that's even more of a challenge, surely being at home. She's seen you all this time. Yeah, she's not used to having me around. She got a dog a couple of years ago, you know, <laughs> and she thought that would be enough. But now she's trying to get rid of me. She's I'm about to go to Nigeria in the next month or so, and she can't wait. I assume, Fred, the Russian times, you're now living in Turkey, but you can't go in, inside, in and out of Russia now, correct? No, I can. I have what is known as a family visa. Oh, okay. I can go in and out. The biggest problem we have, and not getting too detailed, is I get paid in euros and dollars, 
it's very difficult. They've cut off the SWIFT account, so I can't have any movement to banks in, in uh, Russia. So we had to move to Turkey or we would starve. And actually, it's been a quite nice adaption. And so when did you move to Turkey, actually, then, Fred? And, you know, was it just the bank or was it more than that? Did you feel there was other things at play or just the bank? Originally, it was about the bank because I was just going to go back and forth to Russia, right? And then it just, everything collapsed. My wife's a stylist, and now there's no international brands in Russia. So by luck, I had gotten a residency in Turkey because I wanted to get you know, a Russian visa. And as it turns out, God was looking at me because three months later, that was in November, three months later, I needed to think about where we were going to move next. And the cost of living, I'm 350 meters from the Mediterranean. My kids go to you know a Russian American school, believe it or not, run by a group of really good people, teachers from Chechnya. So, wow! Yeah, it's very interesting, and now people are coming through. I can't tell you how many friends I've got all over the world now that have moved out of Russia. And sorry, now you've moved out of Russia, Fred. You still work with Russia. Have you seen much of a change during the last couple of years or so? I would say in the last nine months or so, it's started to change. Before that, with COVID, everything affected everybody in the world. And there's still a supply chain and all of that is an issue. But people survive. The one thing people forget about, especially outside of Russia, is 90% of the Russians, they don't deal with dollars. They don't deal with euros. They deal with rubles. rubles and they're yeah. internal. They don't, like my in-laws, you know, the prices of some things have gone up, but otherwise... They're not affected at all. What about the industry, Fred? I mean, what's your view now of clearly we've gone into energy transition. You've been around a lot. What do you see the we're going through this? The industry's had a big, dirty sort of sticker put on us. Again, we're here to talk about energy workforce for tomorrow. What's your view of what where the industry is just now? Your personal sort of view of what is it and where we need to do next? Well, it's quite a thing because people that I would deal with every day in Russia you know, colleagues, I'd call and ask questions or trying to get work or whatever. And now a lot of those people are gone and now they're being displaced. In a sense, they're going to help the areas from Thailand, Vietnam, yep. to Kazakhstan, to Turkey, all of those guys that are really strong in oil and gas, IT, and in maybe finance, they're all moving out. I mean, there is a drain from Russia for sure. From that perspective, and even they're going to, you know, Brazil and Argentina, believe it or not, it's amazing wherever you can get kind of a long-term residency, the Russians are going, and actually Ukrainians as well. How would you see these Russian companies dealing with some of that talent drain then? Because it's actually a little microcosm of what may happen throughout the future in a number of places, right? The Russia are feeling it big time right now. Yeah, I mean... They're not going to tell you that they have any problems at all. You know, not as much drilling may be going on. The production has gone down a little bit in some places and other places it's raised up. But I talked to a guy that's in the metals industry, and he was telling me that all of his engineers, he was really worried every day he would go in in the last month or so and count who was left and not being drawn into being drafted. That was a big worry for him every day. Sheesh. 
What about the multinationals, Fred? What's your view of, I mean, there's a big talk. Clearly, we see it in the press. You can hear it in the head office sort of corridors that we're all going to change, etc. Again, go back to my intro, Fred, of someone that's in the business units more than any of us. Is that resonating down or do you see a difference or a way of working in the business units having some impact or is it just BAU again? It's a little bit of me and you. The expats in Russia have cut down a lot, but that means the expats are available for other places. Nigeria, for instance, there's huge things going on in Nigeria and they need resources. It's maybe not always, Nigeria is not always, but it's a lot better than it was, you know, 20 years ago when I was there. Oh, yeah. So Nigeria, Cameroon, Zaire, all of these places, even Canada, they're starting to boost up. Venezuela eventually, even though Americans can't go there, everybody else can. Cuba, all of these places are going to grab these resources, and they are. You just reminded me, Fred, there was a nickname given to you and I about 20 years ago. Remember, Mr. Diverse Locations. Neil, I'm not sure you know that, but that was, Fred and I got together and we started presenting to everyone that said, guys, the time has come now. We're not going to do work at the head office. More of this is going to be out in locations like Angola, Algeria, Egypt, Kazakhstan. And they looked at us if we were crazy. And Fred and I were already saying, dude, we've got our tickets. We're off. And it actually changed Fred, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, even in the United States, I mean, Chevron and Exxon and all their headquarters, that's all great. But the work's being done in Midland and, you know, other places, maybe gas in Mississippi or offshore. The work is still being done in the field. And that was one of the things I wanted to bring up a little bit later is one of the things they need to do, in my opinion, is they got to get these young people not in the office. The office is boring, you know, unless they're going to go do innovation or something. Get them in the field where yeah, it's geez. exciting. Hey, so Fred, just going on then from that question, what's your view of the industry and the sort of where we are of what we're hearing corporately versus out in the business units? Do you see specific personally any change or any elements of what's happening? Yeah, I mean, the oil and gas industry, a little bit less refining because that's more regional, but especially in upstream, it's global. So they have all of these people that are moving out, whether it's from Russia or not, and they're moving into these other locations, for instance, Nigeria or Zaire, wherever it could be, Canada, wherever there's oil to be found and looked for, eventually they're going to be in Israel. I mean, I just did a project in Israel, and they have offshore in Cyprus and Greece, and they've just gone online in the last couple of days for gas production. So life is changing, and the places are starting to change a little bit too. Because the water's getting deeper, they're exploring more tight gas and those types of things. And so a lot of the people don't realize and they're not being communicated to, there's going to be some really cool places. It's not all going to be Maldives, but there's going to be cool places to go work. Y'all probably remember I came from mobile and Exxon, then Exxon, XOM. And one of the things was, you couldn't rise up beyond a certain level in the States with ExxonMobil unless you had done time in Qatar Yep, and their LNG program. That's hugely important, and that says a whole lot. I don't think it's changed. And that says is that one of the things that needs to be communicated with these young folks is, you know, yeah, you may not want to always be online, but look, you're going to have these 
opportunities to travel and to see and to learn what you can't do in the United States anymore. Either it's in some cases, like in Russia, some of the drilling and all of that is 20 years before. And then if you go to somewhere like Qatar, the drilling is massively progressive and it's way ahead of the game. I wonder, just feeding on that one as well, Fred, Neil and I were looking at the divestments in the, and also the acquisitions. You've got ConocoPhillips buying some shell upstream assets in the US and Midland, Texas. You've got Chevron buying Noble, which is an Israeli asset. They've got Israeli assets. You've got divestments and people like Exxon and Shell exiting sort of areas in Africa and Asia and giving it back to the locals. That must be a good thing as well, isn't it? Do you think of making it a bit more? The consolidation is a good thing because you get more efficient you know, some efficiency. What's not going to change a whole lot, and that's also good, is the same, what I call guns, which is highly qualified people, are still doing these projects. It doesn't matter who owns them. At the end of the day, it's the same guys that'll be running the drilling, that'll be running the plant, that'll be running the refinery. They still have to have those guys. Okay, that's cool. So go on to the people. What do you think, past, present, future, what do you think skill set we need, Fred, from your perspective in these business units? I mean, the past you and I worked, you needed to know a very specific skill. You needed to understand it. But what's your view of the difference between the past, present, future of what we will need to work in these business units? I look at it almost as we talked about the last few days. In my opinion, you got to look at it from three ways, almost like a table or a stool, because you need the engineering or the oil and gas specific process. Then you need things like MBA program kind of things. And then you're going to need IT skills. You can't survive anymore in oil and gas world without having IT skills. They have a school in Russia called Gukka. It's very good. It's not Texas A&M, of course, but it is good. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're very good, but they have to take a very, very heavy IT load. I mean, they're doing analytics, AI on some of the course loads. I mean, I was talking to some guys. That's one of the people I talked to today. And you can't just get through by knowing how to be a driller or knowing how to do reservoir and production. You've got to know these other skills too. And if you want to progress beyond that, you're going to need, I don't want to call it MBA skills, but you're going to need finance, planning, all of these things to be able to succeed because the number of people will be less, I think, in the future. I don't think there'll be as many as they are now. And how are you seeing, Fred, that these are actually being accepted? Because, of course, with the old drillers from the guys, are they willing to start to learn some of these things? Or are you seeing there just being a need to replace some of these guys? It's funny. At the beginning, you know, they started giving out iPads. See, another good question. Fred's dog. What's the dog's name, Fred? Lexa. Lexa agrees. <laughs> yeah, so the thing is, the drillers were handed iPads to start oh, yeah. doing their analytics yeah, yeah. or you know their daily work on it, and they take it home, and their six-year-olds were already past them. You'd be surprised how many of these guys, because they had to learn it to be able to compete with their kids, because the kids just ate it alive. You know, my kids, you know, made me look like an idiot. Jason always did, my older son. (laughs) Oh, no, not me. Sorry, I was going to say that's a little bit too close. No, Jason Miles. (laughs) But he's an IBMer now anyway. So 
He is indeed. John Nudesic, which is fantastic for Jason, by the way. Big shout out to Jason Miles. Yeah, so the whole thing with that is they were forced, because of that, to start doing it. Now, 20-something years ago when we put in maintenance on uh, Sokolin, at Sokolin Energy, offshore, you know, they got all the drillers and all that. They said, do whatever you want to in this office. We're going to do it the old way. And they had, you know, their little notebooks, the long notebooks. Nothing changed. But it is changing now. It's an evolution. It's not a revolution, but it is an evolution. What do you think our kids need, Fred, going forward? What do you see the Fred of 2030 needing to really have those skills doing the work at the business units? Well, one of the skills that I don't have, and that is multi-language skills. I mean, it sounds really ridiculous, but being able to communicate, everybody, you know, they like hearing about the Gator stories and all of that. So they all work with me on my language because I only speak kind of American. And it's a weak American. And <laughs> in all these languages, you know, I barely speak Cajun. And that's where we're going to go. But the other thing that we as older guys can bring to these younger people is they need to see how our work ethic is. They need to see how we manage because it was very successful. In Russia, it used to be the hammer. You know, you do it my way because I'm the boss and all of that. That's changing. Yeah. It's changing a lot. And it's the same way in a lot of other places, even in America. Managing the right way is something that really is important. And again, that comes back to this school. Oh, there you go. Lexa says yes again. I like it. Thanks, Lexa. How do we need to change? You and I stumbled, and Neil really stumbled into the industry. Actually, you said you tried to get out. Let's be honest. I know you looked at your dad, Mr. Fred Miles Sr., and said, dude, I maybe don't want to do that. And a lot of us stumbled into this industry what do you think we need to do as an industry to influence some of the young ones to sort of are coming through high school, university, to use these skills and come into our industry? Because my worry, you mentioned it earlier, we're not going to get these skills. And then how do we then really digitize and reinvent or transform the industry? That's a tough one, isn't it? And especially it? I'd love to hear it on that upstream, the drillers, the types of things you mentioned, which is changing but requires the IT skills. but also requires some of that industry knowledge and some of the deep stuff and going to all the different places that you mentioned. That's the really tough bit. What I see that the kids need, what the oil industry needs to do is need to get out front and center like Amazon does or any of these big name IT places. And they need to get in front of them and show them that, as we talked about a little bit a while ago, is that Oil and gas used to be this, you know, very secretive, almost black box thing. You produce oil out of the ground and then it comes, you know, into your car. And it's not that way. There's a whole huge amount of engineering and finance and planning and IT, and it's all lynched by the IT bit. Those all need to be brought front and center. What they used to do back in the day when I was coming out of school and that back when dinosaurs ruled the earth. <laughs> it's only 35 years. Right, right. <laughs> is Gulf Oil and Mobile, they would send us to six weeks of uh, go to Lafayette and learn drilling. You don't learn it, but you see it. And you see what an oil rig looks like. You see what a production platform looks like. You go to a refinery. You see how the process flows and all of that. And a lot of the kids today, they're in the headquarters and they've never seen an oil well. 
or an oil rig. And that's a big deal because it's not because they're bad or anything else. It makes it boring for them. It's another book type learning. And they need to see what this equipment looks like, see how it works and why it's different and why it's special and why what we do is special. Yeah, I know we're messing with the carbon footprint and all of that stuff, but we're all trying to improve it as well. And they can be a part of that, but they need to be able to see that. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to get out in the field. I think the other thing we need to do is use our stories, Fred. I mean, you and I always joke, and we can tell stories about both of us in Sackland, Angola, Vietnam, anywhere around these wonderful parts of the world where we're Egypt, where we've really brought a change. I think there's something in us as well as we, let's be honest, coming out of the industry or getting to our exit, we could do a lot more as well of showing what impact we've had to the industry because I don't think we market it well enough. And I'd agree, Jason. One of the key things I think we should make it is turn it on its head to make sure it is seen as a positive, right? Going to all these beautiful places, that's fantastic. I loved all of my time in Angola or Saudi or Russia, for example. I loved all that and just getting that experiences. That has to be something you see, Fred, also as just being one of the key things we need to get out there. Well, it's not only the beautiful places, it's actually the beautiful people. People, One of the things I love is meeting the people. I mean, when I was with you know, a quick story. I was with Pricewaterhouse Cooper as a partner, and I'm going into Russia. I'm going to live there. They put me in what I call expat prison. You know, all of the Australians, Americans, and everybody else is in this one building. And I said, after two months or so, I said, nah, not me. It's not for me. <laughs> I took my driver, and I said, and he was just like in a panic because I just took off. And I found an apartment because it was safe. There was n- nobody in Russia ever bothered me, not once. Actually, anywhere, if I show respect and interest in them, nobody's ever bothered me. So, Fred, why have you not written a book? You and I have spoken about this every time we bloody talk. When's the Fred Miles, the Gator book going to come out? Because that would be an absolute Maybe we need to do it with you and me doing it, you know? I actually started a book, I don't know, 10 years ago and got a number of pages I think I've got a couple of bits of it at home somewhere. Yeah. The funny part is some of it I can't really repeat because at that time that I was don't in these places, it. you're meeting people that don't really want their name out there because they're all owning the oil things and everything else. There's nothing wrong. It's just I don't want to use their name, you know? No, that's cool. So we can use, you know, Lexa and your Chihuahuas and Chihuahua 1 and Chihuahua 2. <laughs> and <laughs> we should write a book about, especially about consulting. We should do one. You should do a podcast. There you go. You've given me an idea. Hey, we could do a podcast. It's the next you know? Hey, so just wrapping up here, Fred, what's your, just thinking of the time, give a view. We didn't talk about Ingenix and your role exactly at the intro. Do you want to give a little bit of a shout out of just what you guys are doing in the industry and who you guys are? Yeah. I mean, we're a consultancy and we focus more on SAP, oil and gas specifically. And we're based out of India, but we have offices in five locations and we're opening two more. And the idea is that we want to combine the things that we talked about is they've got the IT skills because it's based on, you know, the Indian guys are really good and they've got 10 or 15 years of experience with SAP or related. And then they bring in people like myself and a few other guys that I've brought in 
from the old days at PwC. And then we combine it with few people here and there in these countries that we're working. And the idea is to make a kind of a hybrid of the best and brightest and all of that with the idea partially because in all of some of these locations, Qatar is an example, you can't just go into the country. You have to bring something to the people. Mm-hmm. You have to teach them. You know, there's Texas A&M at Qatar now. But back in the day, well, Qatarization, we had to train guys. Yeah. And we had to manage them. And it's not just bossing them. It's make them better so that uh, these business units are really, really finely tuned when we turn it over to them. And that was the idea in Russia. Originally with PwC is, okay, turn this over. You go there for three years. We want it where it runs itself. And we almost got there, not quite, but things happen. But it was a great time. And some of those people that we developed, you know, it's not just me. There was a number of us. My translator is now a partner with Deloitte, for instance. You know, there's all these other, there's CIO of Kalishnikov was my security guard. (laughs) And now he's the CIO of Kalishnikov. So the idea was that we took these young people and we took them beyond where they ever even considered. We just throw it out to them at the night when we were working and doing an SAP project in the middle of the night. And we would sit there and say, well, here, try this, you know, (laughs) and they would get interested. You know, bringing it back to the, because I do, I start talking about everything, but bringing it back to (laughs) engine, you know, we basically do projects on our own. The Nigerian project that I'm going is one that we own and we will do deliver. But then we also work with people like IBM, we're IBM partner and we're SAP partners. And as you know, Jason, y'all bring us in for the guns. What I call guns is the highly expert guys You know, they may need to be solution architects or specialized in something or someone like me who's really good at nothing but talking and (laughs) harsh. (laughs) But we would do this and we've been very successful at it. We're not huge. We're never going to be huge. It's not really our goal. Our goal is to make these projects run more efficiently. IBM can't IBM or SAP or any of these companies. They're not going to hire like they did back in them and have this deep bench of guns and freshers and all the rest of it. So what we're trying to do is subsidize so y'all can do a more efficient job. Makes sense. Fred, as ever, it's an absolute pleasure. Did you and I always catch up from a friendship and family? I love the experience you've got. I don't know about you, Neil, but I'd love to get Fred back on with maybe someone on the university and colleges and use the experience that Fred's got and the colleges and mix that up, Neil. What do you think of that? 100%. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Fred. We don't have the background that you and Jason do, but it's been an absolute eye-opener listening to some of your stories through this. So thanks so much, man. Well, it's been my pleasure, and we'll get together and try and figure out who's the best person to bring on and go from there, because I think it's really an important thing that these companies start to think about You know, yeah, we're retiring and all of that. But you know what? We're really not. I mean, if you think about it, I'm 65 and I've got two 10-year-old twins. I'm not retiring anytime soon. (laughs) You know, (laughs) never actually, because my wife's Russian. And I was going to say that. I know what's happening. You're getting pushed out (laughs) as you get out to work. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, thanks, Fred, for that uh, one. I really, really appreciate it. It's really good. All right. And let's get together again. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Neil. 
first podcast. What do you think, Neil? Enjoyed it? Really enjoyed it, yeah. It's been an experience. Great to speak to someone like Fred and get his take on this, which I just, it's not something I see every day. So thanks so much, Fred. It's been, and thank you, Jace, for getting me on here. Mate. No worries. I'll be doing a bunch more myself. I've already got a bunch more lined up to, that I know. So Perfect. We'll get Fred back on. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Neil. So guys, listeners, please let's give this a listen. Please drop us comments because as we always said, we are still putting the touches to this. We only started in October, so we want to adapt, adopt, and improve this. And if you want to be like Fred and get onto the podcast, drop Neil or I a note. This will be in the footnotes. I'll put Fred, your stuff, and in, Ingenics in the footnotes as well. And thank you, everyone, and see you next time on the podcast. Neil, Fred, have a good day. All right, take care. Cheers, guys. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. <laughs>